This is Kate Moorhead Carroll in the podcast, Find It. Today, I have the great blessing of welcoming Professor Scott Brown, professor at UNF here in Jacksonville, Florida, who is a art history uh, specialist. I've known Scott now for a few years. In fact, we had the joy of co-authoring a book about angels. Um, And uh, Scott is here to talk with us about our stained glass windows. So welcome, Scott. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. Yeah, it's so great to have you. So Scott, if you can um, just briefly tell us a little bit about um, your specialty, I know is is medieval um, art and, and architecture. Tell us a little bit about why church art and medieval art uh, so captivated you. Well, that's a, a question that goes back to my early childhood when I, growing up in Macon, Georgia, uh, was a member of the Episcopal Church right across the street from my house, St. Paul's Episcopal in Macon. And it was a beautiful old um, uh, uh, brick church with lovely stained glass windows and, and not so very different from our own sanctuary around the same, built around the same time. And uh, my, um, uh, my curiosity about religious art probably stems from that time and that experience growing up in, in Macon with a very mixed religious education. It wasn't until I went to, to college and I took by, by chance a class on early medieval art that I began to understand there was a whole history, thousands of years mm. <laughs> of history behind the modern practice of uh, Christianity and our religion. And I saw the integral importance of works of art through this tangible experience of studying the churches and the stained glass windows and the sculptures, the altarpieces of the, the past, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. I began to see each of these artworks as a deposit of people's religious faith at a moment in time, almost archeological. And you get a real sense of how we are not so very different and at the same time, you begin to appreciate the ways that we have changed from the past. Uh, so I really appreciate the tangibility of works of art as reflections of faith at a moment in time, a record uh, of the history of faith in the church. Hmm. So you could, you, in a sense, you see art as a window into the, the faith journey of the individual that created it. Yeah, and let me give you a, an example. Uh, you know, we're so familiar with the, the key biblical stories uh, we learn them in Sunday school, and we can go into the sanctuary, and they're represented in many of our stained glass windows. The stories are familiar, but every time an artist sits down to represent a story, they confront the challenge again of how to interpret the words. It's the same challenge that we face as readers in some ways, but, but when you have to commit to a certain picture uh, and, uh, and fill in all the details that the scripture does not, one of the things I love about scripture is that it tells us only what it tells us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it leaves uh, so many of, of the details up to our, our rereading and our reinterpretation of the text. Um, uh, so many names appear without backstories and histories. I, I published a whole book, for instance, on the story of Yael, uh, a, a biblical heroine from the book of Judges, who only has four verses in the Bible. But there are hundreds of representations of her in medieval and uh, Renaissance art. And they're very, very different. I got very interested in how the artists at a moment in time read the story in a way that makes it make sense and gives it meaning for their own contexts. Mm. And I think that that's the key uh, for me is that each of these works of art is its own 
uh, a mirror of our moment. In a way, you could say that all art is incarnational, isn't it? I mean, it's the incarnation of God, but also through the person that creates the art, it makes it a part of their life and their flesh and blood, yes. really. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and you, that's exactly right. I think of each of these works of art, there's some similarities, of course, between them, but oftentimes there are profound differences between all of the versions of The Last Supper, all of the versions of Gethsemane. Uh, I, but what they are are re-instantiations mm. uh, that both uh, reinterpret the story but also reaffirm our interest and our commitment to it. Mm. So, Scott, you, you found this fascination in college, and it took you all the way to a Ph.D. at Yale, and, yeah. then, and then here. We're so blessed to have you here in Jacksonville. Um, tell us about how did stained glass begin? I mean, it's such an interesting thought that we would create this glass to, to depict stories. How did that start? This is a great question. So uh, the ancient Romans had glass technology, and then because making glasses is a costly and, and somewhat technically challenging industrial process, glass kind of went away for hmm. the early part of the Middle Ages. And it's not until the late 11th century that we begin to see uh, new experiments in the making of, of glass. Uh, and it's soon after that that we find in the 12th century the first surviving works of stained glass. Now this arises at the same moment that European uh, builders began constructing larger and larger buildings. We think of the age of the cathedrals. What is the Middle Ages without the spires of mm. Notre Dame and Chartres and, and uh, the great cathedrals of the Middle Ages? Well, these big buildings imposed real new problems in terms of how you get light inside in oh, a pre-industrial age. Right. If you go into some of the buildings that I study from the 11th century, the Romanesque period, they're almost like tombs. The windows are tiny little slits, and you see these very solid shafts of light coming in through narrow windows that illuminate the interior space very irregularly. It's like being in a crypt. And then you go into a place like uh, Notre Dame or Chartres or uh, the, the great French cathedral Amiens, and the walls are almost dissolved into glass. The, the interiors of these spaces are incredibly luminous. We think of the Gothic as something dark, but that's ironically not true at all. Gothic architecture is an architecture of light. And where there is light, where there are windows, you need something to keep the, the wind and the rain out. And so glass arose uh, as the, uh, the preferred method of doing this. Um, so it was a practical thing. I mean, they needed to, to light these huge spaces, so it began that way. It was initially practical, but of course there's nothing that requires us to have this rich stained glass. Yes. And there you get a theological idea. Mm. It's the idea of God himself as light. And mm. Christ, of course, says, I am the light. Mm. and uh, ego sum lux mundi, I am the light of the world. Mm. And theologically, people of the Middle Ages thought of this very, very seriously as light was a proof of God's existence. And in particular, what they loved is that if you take white light and refract it through a prism, it separates into all of the colors of the visible spectrum of light. And for them, this was a natural proof of the very uh, wonderful divine mystery of the Trinity. Oh, <laughs> that God, God could be both one and many at mm. the same time, all-encompassing but unified. And so glass, stained glass, is a, a, a permanent visual testament to that idea of God as light and of light as this profound mystery. Even today, for us in physics, light is a marvelous mystery. 
it, it is a particle and a wave. Mm -hmm. White light combines all of the colors of the visible spectrum. Uh, there's, uh, there's much that is marvelous. About I would say Einstein would definitely agree with that notion, I think, that, yeah. that light is, is sort of the quintessential um, purveyor of mystery um, to us uh, and, the, and the potential of, a, of some kind of consciousness that made us. It's fundamental even to our concept of time and history. Mm. Uh, and nothing moves faster in, uh, in the universe than, the, than light, as far as we know. And I guess Einstein postulated that if you could, you'd go back in time. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? So when a person enters a sanctuary with stained glass, um, tell us about what is the purpose uh, of the stained glass for the person who's, who's looking towards finding God in the space? Well, I'll go back again to my childhood. I just remember sitting uh, or when I was acolyting up on the, in the sanctuary or when I was in the, uh, the pews, uh, as a child, sometimes I had moments of inattention. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> when I did, I found my, my eyes often wandering to the stained glass windows because they're lovely to look at. And that's one of the most important things about art uh, of any kind is that it draws the eye and it gives the mind a place to rest uh, in, a, in a fertile and, a, and an engaging space visually. And that's certainly true of our stained glass windows. Uh, on, a, on a sunny Sunday, uh, the windows at St. John's are really beautifully illuminated, and in particular, perhaps the ones over the altar in the sanctuary. Uh, so they're, uh, they're engaging um, visually. And uh, I'm sorry, Kate, I've... <laughs> no, they <laughs> are engaging. And so when a person enters, they're, they're sort of walking into the story. Uh -huh. um, is there usually a progression or a, a purpose, or does that vary depending on the church architecture? It varies depending on the church architecture. And in fact, I would say in general, there is a progression, but it's not a narrative progression where we read all of the windows working together in a seamless story. There's a progression in the life of the community itself. Interesting. Just like at our church, most of these churches, of the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the windows were not all made at a single moment in time. Mm. There are too many windows, they're too costly, and the investment in a rich, beautiful, specially designed stained glass window is a, an investment in the future aesthetic life of your church. Mm. So if you look at our church, the first windows date from after the fire when the church was just being built, but the last ones are from the 1950s and 60s. So we're talking about half a century. Right. Uh, and each time a new window is installed, let's think about the human social context in which that happens. You have families and donors who are giving these windows in memoriam, mm -hmm. or you have other occasions and events that are important to the life of the community. And the window is an expression of that community at that moment in time. We go and read the inscriptions and the dedications and the windows in the, the church. As a child, they kind of confused me. I didn't know these people. Uh, they lived a long time before me often. Uh, but as a historian now, I think of them as uh, almost like a genealogy mm -hmm. of our church. Uh, so that, that's the progression. It is a progression which is the social development and evolution of our community, our congregation. That's fascinating. So we're actually, we're learning about the scripture certainly because these, these windows depict generally stories from the Bible. But we're also learning about the history of our own community in the fact that these donors and families probably picked the story that they wanted to depict. Is that yes, correct? They often did. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, we can go back to the Middle Ages and see, for instance, uh, the Cathedral of Chartres, which is one of the most famous cathedrals in France, 
many of the windows were given by local businesses, the guilds of the Middle Ages. There's a, a window given by the Butcher's Guild and a window given by the Baker's Guild. And there are little images of the guild members doing their professions in the bottom of the windows. And then the stories above relate in some way. They're, they're stories that have a special resonance for these communities of people. We can see that in our own windows. Uh, uh, this is the, I believe the Gethsemane window, which was, uh, has at the bottom a row of, of uh, saints who are uh, associated with medicine, including uh, St. Luke, who's the patron saint of doctors. And the window is in memoriam to uh, a doctor who was a member of the congregation. Mm. There is a very clear connection there between uh, the way our windows relate to the, the individuals who are responsible for putting them in place and the way those individuals are parts of our community and the way that the, combined together they structure our memory and our, our traditions of the church, our congregation, the, the memory of the, uh, the scripture itself. Would you say that most churches take you on somewhat of a journey? I mean, as you enter St. John's Cathedral above the baptismal font, of course, we see Mary and the infant Jesus. And then above the altar on the east wall, we see the resurrected Christ. So in a sense, you could say that that it looks as if we're trying to sort of have Jesus's life in the in, depicted in the church, but then we don't do it all. So how does that, it, again, it must be whoever decides to build at what time. But Well, there is a real logic, and this is the other, it's not just the progression of the windows in terms of the order in which they were commissioned by the, the community, but the parts of the church, of course, have uh, a symbolic presence. Uh, the east, the west, the transept, the nave, each of these spaces of the church has a different liturgical and religious function. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, uh, what you're suggesting is absolutely correct. Um, the, uh, the windows in the uh, um, uh, east wall above the altar uh, are the ones that are most closely associated with the, um, the mystery of the liturgy itself. They're the most liturgically significant images. In fact, that um, uh, window that we're seeing with Christ uh, is surrounded by uh, rainbow lights yes. and uh, uh, this is uh, an image that relates to the book of Revelation chapter 4 uh, in which we look into heaven mm. <laughs> and we see Christ seated or the son of man seated on a throne uh, and surrounded by rainbow colored lights and people singing a new song and down below this window we have the choir <laughs> yeah so there is a, a real symbolic relationship between the subject matter of the windows and certain parts of the church uh, and then I, below that, we have the resurrection scene on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, right? Yes. With Jesus and the disciples, which is, we're moving towards resurrection. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Right. And, and when we enter the church, then in, in a sense, um, that space is a little more free to take us towards heaven, would you say? The, the entrance of the church and like the narthexes. Tell us about the narthexes in, in liturgical spaces. What do they tend to depict mm. in stained glass? Yeah, if they have stained glass. Narthexes and, and entryways uh, with sculptures or stained glass or sometimes mural or mosaic uh, representations, they're speaking to uh, how we access the church, why we go into the church. One of the, the uh, um, very common tendencies is to inscribe messages to the visitor over the lintel of the threshold. Mm. Uh, things like, uh, going in is good, <laughs> <laughs> going out is bad, watch uh -huh. yourself. Yeah. Uh, and, but the idea that, uh, that the act of entering into the church is itself 
a very intentional act and one that we ought to think about. Uh, mm. uh, in the Middle Ages, of course, they practiced processions that, like our processional, our limited processional at the beginning of the Mass, begins outside the church and processes through the town until it reaches the doorway. The doorway is an extremely important point. I mean, we talk about the threshold metaphorically yeah. as a turning point, a mm. decision point. Mm -hmm. We're on the threshold of something. <laughs> something is about to happen. And it might happen or it might not happen. And that's always the question, I think, when we go in and we go out. I, I love the, uh, the entryway, our modern entryway, the stained glass window above it, which is about good works. And we see it as we leave the church. That is, when you're yeah, walking into sure the church. Make sure you do those things. Yeah. <laughs> when you're walking into the church, it's over your head and you have you to turn around it. to see it as, right. you, as you walk in. But now as you exit the church, you're seeing this call to good works, mm -hmm. which is uh, when we're outside of the church, it's how we manifest our, our continued faith. Mm. And many people may not realize that a narthex is a small space that's kind of a transitional space. I call it a spiritual mudroom. So yeah. like getting your, in, I grew up in Connecticut, we would stomp our boots and, you know, get our mud off of our feet in the mudroom and yeah. then go in. So it's like a, tran a transitional space in a way, wouldn't you say? It is, absolutely. Uh, and, and I often tell my students, uh, uh, we can't imagine how um, complex and socially diverse the narthex space and the space outside the doorway of the church was in the Middle Ages. The church was at the center of life. And so a lot of secular and profane things that we wouldn't associate with the church today are the kinds of things that were associated with the doorway of the church. That's where you held your big market. Ah. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I love the, uh, the canon law books of the Middle Ages because... You can find some really strange rules in there, like don't bring your goat into the church. <laughs> and if you do, don't put it on the altar. <laughs> wow. Because uh, uh, people go inside the church. It was a good place to contract business. You felt like maybe people were being more honest with you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but when you start to mingle these profane activities with the sacred activities, you're blurring the two sides of the threshold. Interesting. And, and so people of the Middle Ages, I think, would have been very accustomed to finding lots of strange things going on in the mudroom of the narthex. Mm. Uh, but then the inside of the church, we walk into this space bathed in uh, brilliant lights and filled with ornaments which direct our minds to something that is uh, uh, supernatural, that is above the earth. Mm. And, and it was a way of creating a real separation uh, between the outside and the inside. Yeah, the sacred and the profane. There yes. needed to be a, a demarcation. Certainly, I think people would think about Jesus flipping the tables and saying, don't make the sacred space profane. Yeah. Keep them separate. Yeah. Money um, lenders in the temple. No money lenders in the temple. But outside the temple, right on the doorstep right. is okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Scott, tell us about patron saints. So, Tell us about, so St. John, for example, is the patron saint of the cathedral. How do you see that patron saint kind of woven into the fabric of the architecture and stained glass in different spaces? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, John and uh, the, the apostles and, and uh, disciples are central to our stained glass windows, certainly. Uh, and it's, a, it's an interesting question, of course, the our uh, Episcopal Church has evolved as has the, the Catholic Church and over the course of the 20th century in terms of relationships to, to certain stories. So I think, for instance, of the, uh, uh, the Last Supper image, which mm -hmm. is on the west wall of the church. It's a very odd place for it to be. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, usually it's of, closer to the Eucharist, isn't it? It should be normally. closer to, yeah. the, to the Eucharist. Yeah. But, uh, in fact, I think that relates to the fact that uh, the, uh, the practice of the Eucharist itself changed in the Episcopal Church over the course of the 20th century. Hmm. It became a much more important part of our Mass and our service than it was at the beginning. That's true, and the Church was constructed. We were really more into morning prayer for quite a yes, while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think that, that uh, putting that on the West Wall was a way actually of weakening the relationship mm-hmm. to the idea of the Eucharist as, mm-hmm. as a sacrament. Interesting. Um, uh, but uh, John, of course, is such a key figure in that story. Uh, he is um, uh, Christ's beloved disciple. Yeah, leaning against him. And, yes, yeah. yeah. So I, I love that window in particular because it is one that emphasizes Christ's relationship to the disciples and mm-hmm. to John in particular. Uh, but you can feel the, the builders of the church and the people who commissioned that window kind, kind of trying to manage the way that that very important story of the Last Supper has been interpreted and the way that it's, that it's being interpreted now at the, at the church in the 20th century. Mm. But you could say, in a sense, that St. John's Cathedral, our patron saint, is not that pronounced as opposed to some other churches where you see that that particular saint really sort of up front and behind the altar in some way. That yeah. John, John isn't really that pronounced in our architecture no, and stained glass. Uh, and I think that relates again to the, uh, the, the, the likelihood that our uh, the builders of our church and the people who commissioned our windows were a little skeptical of the devotion to the cult of saints. Mm, interesting. <laughs> uh, as Protestants uh, yeah. and as um, uh, a community in an interesting historical relationship to the Catholic Church. Of course, the Anglican and the Episcopal Church are very different in their Protestant formation than the many of the other Protestant denominations. And they, they arose and came about in their relationship to the Catholic Church in the Renaissance and the late Middle Ages in a very different way mm. than the Calvinist and Lutheran uh, communities on the continent. Mm. So I think that's part of it. Uh, but on the other hand, you can also feel an uptake and in interest in saints in our cathedral windows. Almost all of the windows have what we call lancets at the bottom, small, short, narrow windows at the bottom, each of which has a single figure. And almost all of these are devoted to saints or mm. to... Yes, they are. And the one I like in particular is the, I believe it is the window in the... Uh, is it in the transept or is it in the nave? It's, I think it may be on the, uh, the north wall of the nave. Uh, but it represents all of the key English saints or hmm. the insular saints. So we have saints from Wales and we have saints from Northumbria and Scotland and England that represent, in some sense, a historical um, foundation for the Anglican Church uh, and for our Episcopal Church before even there was such a thing as an Anglican or Episcopal mm, Church. These are, of course, all Catholic saints. But they do represent the, the arrival of Christianity to uh, England and the Christianization of England, and then its long history of importance to the Church. Mm. Wow, there, there's so much richness in our windows. Well, well Scott, to, to close, um, what advice would you give to someone who comes and has a moment to sit in our sanctuary, um, how would you advise that they that they take the windows in? Where should they begin, and um, how should they they approach just learning about them? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is the best way to experience windows is the way that they were intended to be experienced, as purely formal expressions of the light of God. 
first of all, appreciate the beauty. Uh, I do. Every time I'm there, uh, I'm, I'm more or less bowled away by how pretty our, how beautiful our sanctuary is and how much the windows contribute to that beauty on a sunny day in particular. It, these windows were not necessarily designed to be legible in the way we think of a painting. Stained glass is itself much more abstract mm. than a painting. Mm -hmm. And then it's broken up by the window frames and the architectural context. And then in a medieval church, the windows would have been very high on the wall and difficult to read as anything other than a, a pattern of beautiful light. Our windows are uh, closer and more accessible. And so once you've appreciated their beauty, there are stories to be learned there. Uh, and, and in fact, the way I learned about them <laughs> is uh, the way anybody else could learn about them. I got interested uh, from my uh, experiences in the cathedral in the stories that were being told. And even though I'm a medieval art historian, I, I didn't know all the stories that pertain to all the names of all the saints that are represented in the Lancet windows. And, and I didn't understand many of the, uh, the more mysterious aspects of the windows. To be honest, I still don't. <laughs> There's one window in the transept, which I, I call the, uh, the mystery window. Mm. which I think is designed to be like an enigma or a riddle and to engage us in thinking and meditating about the possibilities of meaning. So where did I go? I went to the scripture. <laughs> That's the first stop. To go and actually read the passages of the Bible that pertain to the stories of Gethsemane and to the stories of Christ's infancy. Um, and then, uh, of course, I went to, to the encyclopedias and I looked up all the saints. <laughs> And I began to see the logic of how many of these stories are woven together. So I would actually suggest that one of the best ways to learn about it is through our ready access to the marvelous research tool of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what these windows are there for in some ways, as a historical fact, to turn our attention toward the sources of their, of their story. Uh, and I think if we take them as an excuse for reading scripture, that's a good thing. That is, they are a teaching tool as well as just a beautiful um, witness. Uh, yeah. And we, I, you can access Scott's um, wonderful um, lectures on the stained glass windows on our website. If you go to the history portion of the website at jackscathedral.org. We've also got some new uh, videos that have been released uh, in which the windows themselves are shown um, and some of the material that you did is, is used. So Scott, you've been um, a great gift to this community in so many ways, but uh, thank you for taking the time to learn about these windows and then kind of translate them for us and help us to understand them better. Uh, you're, you're a great jewel in our community. Well, thank you so much. It's just a pleasure being here. Every time I get a chance to come down, I'm delighted. And we are so thrilled with you. God bless you. Thank you for joining me in the podcast, Find It. Remember that if you keep searching for the divine presence, you will find it. I want to invite you, if you're interested in hearing more of these podcasts, to subscribe. Just hit the subscribe button and you will be informed of new episodes. And before we part ways, I pray that God will bless you and hold you, give you peace until we meet again. <laughs>